me ask you this question. Uh, how many of you were here? First part of service this morning, the services. How many of you were here? Okay. Y'all remember that song the choir and the praise team did? They did? Was that amazing? Or what? How many of you were excited when that, like, you, like let's just keep going? <laughs> Woo! Yeah. I got thinking to myself, I said, man, if you're not excited after that song, then we need to check your pulse. Yeah, because something's wrong if you're not excited about what the Lord's going to do after that song. And then I got to thinking, why do we need to check people's pulse? Why, why, would, we do, why would I even use that phrase? What do y'all think? Huh? Yeah, yeah, you might be dead. Because if you was alive, you would definitely be excited, right? Yeah. Yeah, we, do, we check people's pulse to check to see if they're alive or not, right? Ever wonder what the church lo- looks like when it's alive? Like, what's the pulse of a church that's really alive? I'm not talking about patting yourself on the back, coming to worship, sitting in your same place every weekend and... Uh, and going home feeling good because you went to worship and Bible study. You may have served somewhere. Or you, man, you, you need to go home and you, you think, man, that was a good sermon. Man, that was good worship. You know, that Bible study teacher, man, he, he teaches a good lesson. I'm not talking about that kind of alive. What I'm talking about is spirit-filled, obedient living alive. You ever wondered what that looks like? Okay, I gave you some hint, but that's, that's neither here nor there. That's, just what it look, that's the result. How, do you, how can you tell when a church is alive for God? When there's a pulse, and blood is pulsing through the veins of that church, and there's energy, and there's adrenaline, and there's, there's smiles, not because we have to, because I think in a lot of churches, people just pull their smiles out of their glove box and put them on, and we walk around like this, and we say, well, how you doing? I'm fine. It is the most overused phrase in churches today, how you doing? I'm fine. And yet we know that within churches everywhere, families are crumbling, marriages are falling apart, children are deciding to live their own way instead of pursuing the heart of God. We have divorce and, and recovery classes and, and all these other things because for some reason we think everybody's fine. And yet, churches are dying. You realize there are over 4,000 churches every month close their doors. Two years ago, uh, when I, I went to one of the, right after I got here, I went to a, one of our associational meetings. That year, 16 churches did not lead anyone to Jesus. They didn't baptize one person in our association. 16 churches in our association. I want to go just close their doors or give me their property. We'll do something out there. So what does it look like when a church is really alive? I want to give you three ways that you can tell when a church is alive. And you can use that piece of paper to write these down. You're going to need that at the end. So save the back side for what we're going to do at the end. You can, on one side, write all you want to. I don't care. But on the back side, use that for at the end. I'm gonna, I got some things for you at the end. And no, Will, we're not making airplanes and throwing them at me, okay? I appreciate that uh, if you didn't do that. But um, tonight we're going to look at three ways that we can tell if a church is truly alive and passionate for Jesus. Here's the first one. If you have in your Bibles, and listen, I'm going to give you three passages that you, many of you know 
by heart. But if you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to look at verses 37 through 40. And if you're familiar with the story, there's a young lawyer that comes to Jesus, and he asks him a question. What does he ask him? Somebody, I hear somebody mumbling. Raise your hand and talk loud. No, not that one. He says, what is the greatest commandment? And what does Jesus say? It says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. That you love one another as you love yourself. For all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, the guy only asked for the greatest, and Jesus says, okay, I'm going to give you the greatest, but I'm going to go one better. I'll give you another one. Here's the first way that you can tell that people in a church, that there's a church that's alive and passionate for Jesus. They love God and they love others. Now, let me, let me explain what love that, that, that Jesus used in this term. He is using agape love. He's not using my conditional love. He's using God's agape love. Do you get that? We need to love God like he loves us with the same kind of love that he loves you and me. I need to love you with the same kind of love that God loves me. We're just saying, oh, how awesome is God's love. How amazing is your love. How great is your love, oh God. We see, that same love isn't just relegated to God, to us. He's saying, listen, I want you to love me back like I love you. But that, it doesn't stop there. He says, then I want you to love others. I want you to love others as I love you. Now, it's easy to love God, isn't it? Let's just be honest. You know, it's kind of like, well, he's God, and he's, you know, gave us Jesus. Sometimes it's hard to love one another, isn't it? It's kind of hard to love people who have hurt us and people who have said things about us and people who have stabbed us in the back or betrayed a trust or, or a boss who has who has, you know, in our mind, done us wrong. We, it's hard to love those people. And yet God says, you love them just as I loved you. See, it's easiest for us to love the orphan and the downtrodden because they, we figure they need it. But, but how easy it, is it to love a spouse that you don't sense loves you back? God didn't say love them as they love you. He says love them as I have loved you. Love them with that same kind of love. You see, a church that is passionate for Jesus loves God and loves others as he loves us. Now, a lot of churches think that we exist for ourselves. You see, we, we don't exist as a church without the love of God or without the love for one another, without loving him back. We don't exist if, we, if it's just one way. A lot of churches try to, try to exist without loving others and loving God, and those are the churches that are closing their door every month because they forgot to love. You see, even Jesus says, listen, I want you to love God and love others. He said, because that's the church that I'm going to build. Remember he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. You think he's going to build a church of people who don't love God and love others? Why would he waste his time? 
He says, I'm going to build my church, and my church loves God with all that they have, and they love others the same way. And so we love God, we love others. That's the first mark. Look at Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. Again, you guys know this stuff. You guys know this stuff. Jesus has his disciples gather on a little hill, and, and he says, listen, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And since it's been given to me, I want you, therefore, to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then I want you to teach them to obey all the things I have commanded you. And I will be with you until the end of the age. And so the first one is a church that's alive and passionate for God, spirit-filled and obedient living, loves God, loves others. But they're also committed to making disciples. They're also committed to making disciples. Who was this? Let me ask you this. Who was this command given to? Anybody know? I mean, we usually say this is, who is this church? Who is, okay, I gave you the answer now. All right, not a trick question. Who was this command given to? To us. To the church. Y'all can speak up. Y'all speak louder than that at home, I know. The church, that's right. Thank you, Casey. You're awesome, dude. It was given to the church. Who makes up the church? Yeah, us. Thank you, Casey. You're on, dude. In fact, this is our, these are, some people would say that's, that's the church's marching orders, isn't it? That's, that's the why we exist, is to make disciples. We, we exist to make disciples. The church does not exist so that we can feel good about worship. The church does not exist to feed our sense of need, whatever that is for each of us. The church does not exist to provide places of leadership so, so we can feel important about ourselves. The church does not exist to fill hard metal chairs with rear ends and to fill up rooms with people. We don't exist. Listen, the world does that. AA does that. They fill up rooms full of people in, in metal, with metal chairs, you know, put rear ends in metal chairs. What's different about them and the church? Because we exist to make disciples. We exist to make disciples. And that command was given to you and me as the church. So we are all commanded to make disciples. It's not Don and my and Todd and Dustin. It's not just our job to make disciples. It's not your Bible studies leader, leader's job to, to make disciples. It's not your ministry leader's job just to make disciples. It's your job and your job and your job. It's y'all's job. And your job, and your job. It's, your job. it's my job to make them. We're all involved in the disciple-making process. The problem is, is we've removed ourselves and said, hey, come and hear my great pastor. Now, pastor, I'm not saying you're not great, okay? But listen, he's good. I love to hear Don preach. But it's his job. He can't disciple an entire worship center full of people. Or we'll say, come and hear my great teacher. I got this great Bible study teacher. Oh, you learn so much. Well, that teacher can't disciple a room full of 20 or 30 people. That's too many. 
He can teach them the word, but he can't hold them accountable. He can't necessarily pray for all their needs. He can't help them grow personally. He can't invest in everybody. He can't disciple. He can teach, but he can't disciple everybody. And that's why you come in. That's why you're so important. That's why when we say the church, it includes you, not just the leaders. That command wasn't given just to your staff, but it's given to you as well to make disciples. Here's the third point. So the first one, if you walk into a church and you can, you can tell when there's people in there who love God and love others. You can tell when there are people in there who are committed to making disciples. Here's how I know you can tell. There's new people in there. There's new leaders being raised up. There's new groups starting somewhere. There's, there's something new going on, and it's exciting. But here's the third way you can tell. Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8. Jesus is about to ascend, and he calls his little group, his little band of followers. And these guys, man, they've been through the ringer emotionally. Physically, some of them, man, they, 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 they're, they're like, Lord, what's going to happen? He goes, listen, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when it does, when you receive that power, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the utter ends of the earth. Did you hear that? Here's a third mark of a church that is alive and passionate for Jesus. They're telling people about him. They can't help but tell people about it. It's not just up to the pastors to lead people to Jesus. You're, you know, at a church that is alive, they're seeing co-workers come to know Jesus. They're seeing aunts and uncles come to know Jesus. They're seeing cousins come to know Jesus. They're seeing uh, friends and baseball team members and classmates and team members and band members. And they're seeing people all around them come to know Jesus because they have received the power of God and they are living it out in their own life. You can't help it. And when it's easy to forget that there's not a Christian in every home. This didn't ring more true to me than last summer in 2015 when a young man by the name of Braden Bradley took his own life. I mean, his house is right outside my neighborhood. When he took his own life, he was, I think, 14 years old. He did not know Jesus. And he was half a mile from this church. Now, not to say somebody, you know, I know he had been to some of our events. I know he had probably heard the gospels from friends that probably told him. But for some reason, he had never entered into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And goes, but nobody in their home knows Jesus. And God told me, he says, Mike, Wind Baptist Church has got to stop believing that there's a Christian in every home, in every neighborhood. Because it, there's not. Don, what was it, 80%? 70% of the people in Cross County and Wynn are not in a church on any given Sunday. And a lot of those is because they don't know the church wants them or loves them or is going to love them enough to tell them the gospel. For a win, I share this in our Discover WBC class. I say, you know, here, here our Jerusalem is Wynn, right here where we are. Our Judea is the Delta and Arkansas, like, you know, where we minister to Chanson and those guys. 
Our, uh, Samaria is the United States, and that includes areas like Casper, Wyoming, and Spokane, Washington. And then our ends of the earth are, are, are everywhere outside of that, including Vancouver, B.C., Haiti, Zambia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, wherever God leads us in those areas. And to be honest, guys, I, I kind of think we almost got it backwards. Because we're really good at it, and people really want to go out there. And I do too, because I know what's out there. I've been, I've been out there. I've been, I, I lived overseas. I know what that's like. I know where there aren't a lot of believers in some places. And we have um, church family members out there and even literally family members out there in parts of the world. But guys, <laughs> we're missing the trees right in front of us. We're missing the knees right here in our own backyard. Matter of fact, it's funny because uh, one of the couples that came to our last Discover WBC, uh, a wife told me later that her husband said, this is great, but what are they doing in their own backyard? And that really convicted me. Because here's, here's what I know, that if this church was on fire and had a passion for the Lord and loved God and loved others like he loved us or loves us, that we were committed to making disciples and, and, and passionate about sharing the gospel, nobody would ever question whether Wind Baptist Church loved this community or not. Nobody would ever say about Wind Baptist, that's that white rich church. They want everybody, it's all about them. No, you know what it would look like? There'd be somebody who would come to me and says, Mike, what about that apartment complex across from, across from the junior high? Has anybody thought about going there and having a Bible study once a week or every other week and just reaching out to those people? Anybody thought about taking the gospel to those people and telling them that Jesus loves them and here's how they can live uh, very practical lives for him and be transformed You see, if, if, we, if we were a church that looked like this, then rather than having 20 or 30 men on a Thursday morning, some of you men would gather somewhere where people can see and you'd be pouring into each other and you'd invite some friend that you know that meets there every morning as well and say, come over here. We're just praying for one another, studying God's word. How can we pray for you? You know what my heart beat with this, this week? I want to see every place that's open for breakfast, I guess except for Sonic, it'd be hard to do, but to have a group for Wynn Baptist Church gathered together around some tables, studying God's Word, being a witness to, to Him in this community. You know, uh, when I got here, we used to do, what, Mission Wind projects before I got here, and that was where the Bible study classes went out into the community. You know who planned those? Jeff Gibson. And I like Jeff. Man, he was, when I got here, I called him and said, what about this and this? He was a big help, man. And I have got to meet Jeff and talk to him. He's a great guy. And when I got here, we stopped doing them because I wasn't used to planning mission projects for a church that should have been doing it on their own all along. You see, when the mission ministry was founded on Jeff, not on my love for this community. You see, if there's a church who loves God and loves people, 
is committed to making disciples and sharing the gospel, then some class is going to come to me and says, Mike, we want to go into a neighborhood. We want to start prayer walking in the neighborhood. We want to start reconnecting with those families. We want to do game night or we want to do a Bible study, but we want to get the word of God in that community. They wouldn't look to a pastor to, to tell them what to do next because the Spirit of God would be leading them. Because the love of God would be so overwhelming in their heart that they couldn't help it. See, a church, when it is alive, they're seeking others to love. They're seeking others to share the gospel with, and they're seeking people to disciple. So what happens? What, how, do, how do churches lose their way? Well, over time, a church can lose its focus and its passion. A church can become misdirected or redirected, and, and other things become important like programs and people. And they replace what's really important, and that's loving God, loving others, making disciples, and sharing the gospel. There's some churches in the Bible who lost their way. And so if you have your Bibles, let's turn over to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. There are some churches that lost their way. And this week, I was really burdened. And um, I don't know how much of it was me or God. But um, <laughs> I'd been sick. And so I started taking some, some, some of this cough medicine and you ever wake up just itching all over? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Well, you just feel like, you know, no matter how much you scratch, you're itching. That was me one night this week. And about 11-something, I finally got up. Cindy goes, you just need to get up and drink some water and get that stuff out of your system. What I didn't know is God had plans. So I got up and I got me a big old glass of water like this. And I went to my office and I began drinking. I began praying, Lord, I get a sense that you want to tell me something. And I began to pray, Lord, what do you want us to do? As a church, what is it you want us to do? What do you want to do in us and through us? And he says, Mike, open your Bible. And I have a bookshelf here, and right there is one of my study Bibles that I use a lot. And, and I opened it, and he says, turn to Revelations chapter 2 and 3. And I want you to begin reading the seven letters to the seven churches. He says, and as you do, I want you to write down every charge that I have against those churches. And so I did. And I think it was a reminder that these are some churches who lost their way, who got redirected, who saw that other than loving God, loving people, making disciples, and, uh, and sharing Jesus, something else became more important. And so let me, let me just walk you through this. I'm not going to read every letter. I'm just going to tell you kind of their charge. So we began with the church at Ephesus, and Ephesus was one of those that, that Paul loved the church at Ephesus. But here's what God said to him. He said, you have lost your first love. Remember how far you have fallen. You've lost your first love. Wow. 
when he gets to Smyrna, now remember, there's two churches that he really doesn't charge. He actually, in, in, one way, in some way, encourages them. And Smyrna is one of those churches because he says, I know the, the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Now, I don't know how encouraging that is. Hey, it's going to be good. Now, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Wow. But God was saying, listen, I know. I know who you are. I know how you stood strong. I know how you've stood on the, in your faith. So don't worry about those other guys. Then he comes to Pergamum and he says, you have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans were a group of people who had similar beliefs as those of Balaam, that, that they believed in eating uh, food offered to idols, they believed in sexual immorality and all those things. He says, listen... You have people there in your church that are doing this. They're misleading my people. And you're permitting it. You're allowing it. To Thyatira, he says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of foods offered to idols. Again, you have somebody in a place of leadership who calls herself one thing, but here's who she really is, and you're allowing it. Can't you see it? You're not staying true to my word. To Sardis, he says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Mine has an exclamation point after wake up, so I kind of figured it was emphatic. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete. You haven't done everything I've asked you to do. You're just going through the motions. You look like, you look good on the outside, but on the inside, you guys are dead. You're dead. To Philadelphia, he encourages them. He says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come down and fall at your feet and acknowledge that I loved you. He says, I'm going to stand up for you. So don't you worry about that. I'm going to let them know that you have been faithful to me from the beginning. But then he gets to Laodicea. And many of you know this church well. You know this this phrase, he says, you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You look like the church. You act like the church. And we have flashes of what the church ought to be like. But the reality is, is you're really not. You're not really passionate for me. You have pockets of it, maybe. But as a body of Christ... You're missing it. You're missing out. Now, of those five churches that he, to whom he brought charges, he gave four of them a specific command afterwards. What did he tell them to do? He said, repent. Repent. Hey, church, if you're playing church, repent. Hey, church, if you got people in your, in, your, in your group that is misleading my people, repent. 
you're not passionate for me, repent. Repentance comes from being broken and realizing, man, I'm not who I am in my relationship with God, and I'm not doing what he's asked me to do. I'm not fully committed. I'm still holding something back, and oh, man, I need to repent. I need to come before God and be broken and say, God, man, here's what I've been doing. I've been playing church. I've been, I've been worried about my own feelings. I've been worried about my own needs and my own desires and my own preferences instead of just pursuing you wholeheartedly. That's what I should have been doing all along, God. And that night, that's what God did to me. I mean, that morning, I guess it was night, 11-something. So about 1-something that morning, I remember just bowing my head, and I'm just praying, and I'm just going, God, here am I. Send me. You, you get all of me from now on. You get my heart. You get my mind. You get my soul. Fill me with your love. Empower me to be your witness. Come on, God. I mean, think about it. Would God not do what he says he asks you to do? Would he not empower you to make disciples? Would he not empower you to share the gospel? Would he not empower you? Would he not love you so that you can love him back just like that? Sure he would. On the back of your piece of paper, I want to ask you to write the answers to six questions. And you can just, I don't know, number one to six, however you want to do it. Leave some room between them. Uh, Here's number one. I want you to write the answer to this. How long have you been a Christian? Just write down. And if it's like, you know, 60-something years, just write 60 plus. I don't know. I had to stop and do the math. Okay. Write down how long you've Write number one and write the number. You'll know what it means. How long have you been a believer? How long have you been a believer? Write that down. Some of you got your phones out calculating. Okay, 19, something, it's 2,000. Here's on number two, write number two. And I want you to write down the names of several people, three, four, five people that, that you hang out with. That if I'm going to find you and somebody says, well, they're hanging out with their friends, here's who it's going to be. Who are you hanging out with? Write that on that piece of paper. Who are you hanging out with? If I were to see you up in Jonesboro out to dinner, who would I see you out to dinner with? Now, on number three, this pertains to number two. How many of those people you wrote down are saved? And how many of them are lost? How many of those people that you hang out with are actually lost? I want you to write down number three and write down the number of all those names. How many of them are saved and how many of them are lost? How many of them know Jesus and how many of them don't? And it may wrote, I wrote five names down and five are saved and zero are lost. I don't know, four and one, three and two. I mean, there's only so many combinations, I guess, isn't there? Write down how many are lost, how many are saved. Number four. Well, that's, that's number three and four, sorry. Number five, here's number five. When, I want you to write down, and you can use an event, you can use a time, you can use write their name. When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? And when I say the gospel, I mean the full gospel. You get down to the end and you say, are you ready to make that commitment? 
I'm not talking about the qualifying questions where you say, hey, um, you know, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd spend eternity? Or if you were standing before God and he said, why should I let you in heaven? We're not talking about that. We're talking about where you get into a, a sharing of how much God loves them and how they need Jesus in their life. I want you to write that down. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you did that? Maybe it was this week. Maybe it was last week. Maybe it was six months ago. Maybe it was on our mission trip. Maybe it was, I don't know. Maybe you can't remember when it was, but you remember who? Well, it was when I was doing this. I was getting gas, and I met this lady, and we got to talking, and I shared the gospel. I don't know when that was. What you write down? You'll know. God will know. Now, listen. Don't go in there and start putting down, well, kind of sort of shared the gospel with this, and I kind of sort of, because, listen, I, I'm, I don't want these back. And, and if you're not telling the truth or you're trying to, trying to justify thinking you shared the gospel, well, God knows the truth. So the only person you're fooling is who? You, exactly. So be honest. Be honest. Then when was the last time you led someone to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior? When was the last time you led somebody, you celebrated a new brother or sister? When was the last time you did that? I look at Wind Baptist Church, and when Don called me and said, or emailed me and said, would you pray about coming here? I didn't know where Wynn was. I got on the map and, you know, on, on the Internet, and I looked, and I called him back, and I said, dude, you're in the middle of nowhere. You're like an hour from anywhere. You know, like I was a half mile from everywhere. And I said, you know, he goes, but Mike, I'm telling you, something's, something is special. God is going to do something special at Wynn Baptist Church. And I still believe that. I've shared some things that God has shared with me, with Don, and just said, I know God is going to do something, but he's not going to do it until his people come together, like Don said, and they're prayerfully surrendering their battles and their struggles and their lives to the Lord. But I also know it's not going to happen until we love God and love people. See, when it's all about us, it'll never be about them. And yet, he didn't say just make disciples of us, did he? He said make disciples of what? All the nations. That includes those people out there. That includes the people we go to school with. That includes, that includes our teachers. That includes students. That includes people we work with. That includes the people over in West Memphis and Marion and, and Forest City and Parkin and Earl and West Wind. That includes them too. We've got to be committed to loving them and then helping them make disciples, sharing the gospel with them. Missions are great, but listen, folks. If we're not doing that here, then we've got everything backwards. Because Jesus said, start where you are. Start where you are. We've got to stop saying, come in here, and we've got to start doing the go and tell. Let's pray.